Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Clean Air. Today, making noise about the silent killers in buildings. My name is Dusty Rhodes and joining me from Canfield is John Holmes. How are you doing, John? Doing great. Thanks, Dusty. Today, we're going to be talking about mould and asbestos, sometimes referred to as the silent killers in buildings. To find out more, we're joined by an expert with over 20 years experience dealing with the most complex indoor air quality, mould and hazardous building materials issues. He's worked on projects from remediation work at the Newmarket Courthouse, one of the largest and most comprehensive mould cleanup projects undertaken in Canada, to acting as primary consultant for the development of government mould cleanup guidelines. A director with Pynchon Limited, one of North America's premier environmental engineering, building science and health and safety consulting firms. It's a pleasure to welcome Stephen Booth. Stephen, how are you doing? Very good. Nice to meet you guys. Can I start off with mould? Because every time somebody hears mould, they go, Ugh. I mean, it's a dirty word, but what does it actually do to you? So mould in buildings is a problem, obviously. It happens when you know, whenever you have a leak or a flood or water damage or some kind of chronic drip happening in your building, that water accumulates over time and many materials, drywall, carpet, wood, almost everything we build in a building will grow mold. If you get it wet for long enough, it almost always gets moldy. So, you know, that leak happens for a long time. That mold starts off. Usually you have a two or three day window before when the leak starts, by the time you get things drying. If you get things drying, cleaned up in that time, you've got no problem. But if, uh, if it lingers longer than that and stays wet, then the mold starts to grow. And then, you know, it really grows exponentially at that point in time. So you get a little bit at first, and then it creates spores that move into the wet areas beside it. And then they grow and they create spores and move into the wet area and so on and so forth. It's like that hair wash commercial from the 1970s. And um, it just grows and grows. When you get those, you know, substantial amounts of mold growth in your building, then there are a number of health effects that can occur uh, for building occupants and primarily upper respiratory and allergy in nature. So, you know, coughing and wheezing, aggravation of asthma. For some individuals, really, it can trigger asthma. So, you know, you may have a predisposition for asthma and that sensitizing experience of, of mold exposure in the building can actually trigger you to have asthma from that point forward. So those are the those are the risks and that's really why we have to make sure that we get those leaks and floods and water damage episodes sort of addressed quickly in our in our buildings. Now just curious, you know, outside of the obvious of seeing mold, what, what sort of signs would there be that that your your office building or whatever building you're in might have mold? Yeah, you're really looking at that past history of water damage in the building. So, you know, a, a building that's been maintained well, that has a property manager that goes around and inspects it on a regular basis, that they're, you know, inspecting their HVAC equipment on a regular basis, they're making sure their condensate pans are dry, not overflowing, not clogged with, you know, debris and crud that can build up over time. If, if you're maintaining that building well, and you're keeping that building dry, and then in any building, you know, there are going to be leaks and little things that happen from time to time. As long as those get cleaned up and addressed quickly and effectively, then you're really, there isn't a mold concern in the vast majority of buildings. It's when, you know, that maintenance isn't getting done like it should be getting done, or that leak happens and, 
you know, oh, it wasn't that bad. I don't really need to get it dried out. What we see very commonly is, uh, you know, a restoration contractor will come in, mail, sale, you know, to dry this properly, I need to cut some holes in the bottom of the walls to extract the water and I, they're trapped in the sill plates. And I need to run the fans and dehumidifiers 24 hours a day for the next week or so. And the tenant or the building occupant says, well, I don't want these fans. It's very noisy to run during the day. And I don't really want you to open the holes in the bottom of the walls to extract the water because that's disruptive. So, you know, when you stop those individuals from doing the work they need to do, that's when you end up with a mold problem down the road. Can I ask, Steve, have you come across any like really extreme examples of mold? Yeah. Well, it's, so it's not a traditional mold problem, but the sort of the weirdest thing we ever ran into was we got called at one point in time because a, a provincial park in Northern Ontario had a dormitory building that they, you know, people stayed in for the summer while they worked at the park. They had an electrical problem of some kind. So they hired an electrician and the electrician came and there was a crawl space under the building and he crawled underneath the building to fix the electrical issue. And he came, the story is he came bolting out 10 minutes later, shouting that there were aliens under the building and that uh, there's no one should be there. And he hopped in his truck and he drove away never to return. So in the building, there was a, a very unusual and very rare dry rot fungus that grows into these huge pendulous hanging pods. So, you know, it really was a bit like a body snatchers episode. So we, you know, we got called, we came in and had a look, we go underneath and there are these big leathery sacks hanging from the ceiling at all these locations. You know, it was a dry rot fungus that essentially fungus grows in a damp location in the soil. But then it sends its roots out, its hypha out to uh, invade the wood around the building and, and sort of, you know, destroy the wood in the building. So in the end, that building, I think, needed to get torn down because this fungal damage was so extreme. On the other end of the spectrum, we're more of the day-to-day or the common mold uh, examples that you see. What, what sort of mitigation tactics do you, do you employ to get back to normal? And so if, I mean, if you have a building and you have mold that's occurred, you're really looking at precautions. And we've patterned precautions for a lot of hazardous materials in the same way. We have, you know, low, medium, and high-risk precautions. So, you know, if you think the exposure is going to be substantial and in, in mold that's, you know, there's more than 100 square feet of mold growth, then that falls into this high-risk or level three uh, work. Or, you know, there's very little mold. There's, you know, a couple of square feet on, you know, around a bathroom vanity or something. So, that would be level one work or low risk. And then there's level two, which is medium risk, as you might expect. Uh, so that level one, two, and three, those are the precaution levels. And, you know, at the bottom end, it's put a drop sheet down, keep the work area very clean, don't spread dust around, and wear a respirator while you do the work. Uh, at the high end, you know, you're building enclosures to contain the dust. You've got HEPA-filtered negative air units to make sure that the dust you generate stays within the workspace that you're working in. You have full face or positive powered air purifying respirators on, uh, you know, so you just bring that level of precaution up dramatically for, for the worker, for, both for the worker and to protect the occupant. So, you know, you're looking at doing both of those things. That's why we're really building those enclosures. Is there any um, common myths surrounding mold and it, how often you might run into it or just in general? 
that uh, you've you've heard over the years that you could maybe debunk today? Yeah, I think the you know the biggest misconception is that there are you know specific kinds of mold that you have to be worried about, and there are molds that you that aren't a problem. And the reality is that at, and so that myth stems from when you know people were first concerned about mold growth. They were concerned about a, a specific mold called Stachybotrys. And Stachybotrys creates a number of mycotoxins, which are essentially, you know, in nature, those mycotoxins are designed to fight off the next mold that might be growing on the patch of decaying leaves or straw that's next to it. But it also can cause, in high doses, can cause very serious illness in individuals. The problem is that that dose of mycotoxin that you get from exposure to mold in a building is like at very low level. So it's really going to cause those irritant effects, upper respiratory issues that we had talked about previously. And the molds that don't produce that, while they might not produce it because of mycotoxins, they can very well produce it because of all the allergenic effects. So, you, you know, it really doesn't matter what kind of mold you have in the building. So a lot of people, you know, I have that black mold, that black mold, I know that's the problem. In my mind, they're all the same. You if, if there's mold growth growing in any significant amount in the building, it needs to be cleaned up to minimize the risk to the individual. I've also heard about mold or fungal fragments. Uh, can you speak to sort of the difference between the two and how prevalent one versus the other might be? Yeah. So, I mean, fungal fragments are far less prevalent in air, both in buildings and outside. So fungal fragments are bits of broken hyphae or mycelia or a bits of broken mold structure that, you know, come off the organism because it's been damaged in some way. So, you know, if you, if you did mold remediation, you tore off a bunch of scrapes of mold off something, you might find a lot of uh, fungal fragments in the air immediately following that. Mold spores, on the other hand, like those are essentially the seeds of the fungi. They've evolved to become, to distribute from where that fungus is growing so that the, it can propagate. Many of them are distributed by the air. So they grow little tiny sacs on top of a, you know, a stem kind of thing. And then that sort of expands and it's got an array of spores on it. And those spores all get drifted and blown into the air. So the means of dispersal of the spores is often airborne. 90% of the time it's airborne. So it's very common to see mold in the air. You know, on a nice summer day, if you did a spore trap sample or an airborne mold sample outdoors, you'd very likely see 50,000 mold spores in every cubic meter of air. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of mold in the air naturally just from what occurs in the environment. That, that's funny because a lot of people, when you think of mold, you think of what you see on a, on a wall or a ceiling. Uh, how are you able to test then for, for this mold if it's carried in the air? Yeah, so, so you can do an air sample. And there are a couple of different ways to do that. But the most common way <clears throat> is you collect, uh, you draw a sample across a microscope slide, essentially, that has a small strip of adhesive on it. And the, you know, the velocity of the air moving through the sampler impacts the mold spores in the air and any other dust onto that sticky strip. And then that's, that sample goes to the lab. They remove the slide. They mount it on a microscope. And they you know, actually physically count the number of spores, and they identify the different kinds of spores. So Steve, if somebody wanted to do their own testing, is that something they might be able to DIY? I don't think you could DIY spore trap air analysis yourself. So 
In fact, you know, when we first started doing mold consulting, I don't know, 20 years ago, whatever it was, and Pynchon has its own accredited microbiology labs, you know, specifically so that we can analyze these samples and get good quality results for our clients. You know, we said, well, on the asbestos side, our, you know, almost all of our field technologists are accredited to read uh, asbestos air samples. So, you know, they take a sam air sample in the field, they mount it on a microscope, and they're accredited to count that to understand what the, you know, fiber concentration of air is following abatement work. We thought, oh, we should be able to do that with mold air samples as well. It's got to be just as easy. Well, it wasn't anywhere near as easy. So we have a lot of PhD microbiologists in at the Pynchon lab analyzing those samples to, to get them right. And, you know, for many of them who maybe fungi wasn't their first field of study, they might take a year to really uh, get good at and really competent at analyzing those the spore trap air samples. Lately, there's been sort of two different camps. There's those that want to, you know, reach out to experts like yourself and, and get air quality testing. Others are, you know, inclined to maybe install some sensor technology or use AI. Is, is, is there a technology today that could sort of, you can set it and forget it? And, or, or is there kind of one direction or the other that you need to sort of lean on when it comes to maximizing indoor air quality? So sensor technology in buildings has come a long, long way from where it was, I don't know, five, even five years ago. So you know, for a long time, we would almost never have considered installing, you know, reasonably priced, frankly, low cost sensors in a building and thinking we'd get anything near close to reliable results. And, you know, more and more, you know, some of these technologies work very well. Um, a lot of the carbon dioxide sensors in particular are quite accurate. They self-calibrate during vacant periods uh, and they provide pretty reliable results. So. The problem is with a sensor, all you get is that data. You don't get the, you know, what does that data mean? How do I use that data? How does it help me manage my building better? So you, know, you need both the information about those indoor air quality parameters and you need kind of the expertise to interpret them and, and use them in a way that helps you manage the building. And, you know, some of the things that these low cost sensors they do CO2 very well. How well they do VOCs, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe good in some cases, maybe not. Uh, th they go up when VOC concentrations go up and they go down when VOC concentrations go down. What the number they say is, I, I don't know that has any bearing to reality. But uh, they do move in the same direction so that you can infer things from them, but you can't necessarily rely on it. You know, say, I, I want to maintain below a specific level. And say that that sensor is going to, you know, understand what that level is and be properly calibrated and, and give me a reading that's, you know, reliable in that way. That, you know, the equipment that an, an indoor air quality professional might bring out to the field, it's been calibrated, you know, the same day that the equipment's being used. Like that's much more reliable from a, from a measurement point of view. I think I know what your response is going to be given what you just said, but what is your take on, you know... These guys and gals out there that'll bring a, a device in, let it test for 24 hours, and then send you a bill for a thousand bucks so you can tick the box of, I measure my indoor air quality. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the measurement part of the samples is probably the least important part of the indoor air quality testing. So we often have clients that want us to come in and do you know, carbon dioxide, temperature, relative humidity, 
carbon monoxide, airborne particulate. Those are kind of the standard things that we measure. So now they come in, we, and we're happy to go out and take those measurements, but the value isn't in the measurement. I'd say 99% of the time, the measurements all look perfectly normal, even in buildings that, you know, maybe have problems. It's the, it's having the trained technician walk through the building and look for issues. So, you know, they're opening your air handling unit and they're a second set of eyes from your, from your building deck. Who's seen the same air handling unit every single day for the last 15 years, right? So that spot of gray, funny looking stuff that's growing by the condensate pan, they've seen that every day since they started working there. They don't even flag it as something unusual. But so that tech with a second set of eyes says, hey, look at all that mold inside your air handling unit in that corner or... Oh, geez, I walked through the second floor and there's, you know, three dozen water damaged ceiling tiles underneath where your rooftop air handling unit is. Like, what's going on with that? They see that there's more soiling around diffusers than is typical. So what does that say about your housekeeping and th th that kind of thing, right? So it's really that extra set of eyes of that trained individual looking at things. Sometimes the measurements show, you know, find an issue. But it's, it's really not all that rare. Like we find we can give the most consulting advice to improve indoor air quality through those visual observations more than the actual testing measurements. Steve, I'm not an expert like yourself or like John. So if I have a trained technician who's coming around to inspect my building, is there any way that I can kind of suss out or test that person to see if they are the expert they say that they are? Oh, good. what a good question. I mean, I think, I think you just need to, have to talk with them, like have a, have a discussion with that person, ask them, you know, what, what measurements they're taking, what information they hope to infer from that, you know, what other things they might be looking at while they're at the site. And I think if that person comes across to you as, you know, being thoughtful and competent and knowledgeable, then, you know, probably that's all you can do. I mean, someone could always bamboozle you. I'm sure that's possible for somebody to do who's in the business of doing that. But in certain areas, there are individuals who will, there are organizations. So in Ontario, in Canada, there's the Environmental Abatement Council of Canada, and there's a series of consultants that are members of that organization. You know, and for the most part, all of those, it, all of those companies have the required skill. And, you know, from a building's owner's point of view, there's a, it, the EACC came out last, last year or two years ago with an indoor air quality guide in office buildings that's available for free on their website. So, you know, you can go there and that, you know, has a lot of, you know, you're not, if, if a building owner or operator sort of read through that, you'd have a pretty hard time for someone to come in and, you know, snake oil them into something that they, that didn't make sense. From, you know, I'm curious because I'm, I go by John the filter guy. I'm a bit of a filter geek. That's what I, that's all I do. From a non-filter guy position, you know, what role do you think that different sorts of air filters, uh, what role do they play uh, in, in mitigating airborne threats like mold and mold spores? Yeah. So, I mean, filters are a sort of the first line of defense of the air that's coming into the building. I mean, the biggest actual indoor air quality problem we run into most of the time is poor ventilation. So not bringing in enough outdoor air for the number of people that are present occupying the building. So the more outdoor air you want to bring in, 
the more you need that to be filtered as it's coming in the building. So you don't necessarily want to bring that 50,000 mold spores per cubic meter of air from outdoors into your building or the pollen or, you know, the other allergens that are outside. You want to keep them outdoors. And, you know, as we see, you know, PM 2.5 concentrations in particular sort of moving higher and higher in urban areas in particular, if you want to have ventilation, so we want to bring that fresh air, quote unquote, fresh air in from outdoors. With, and by fresh air, we mean air that has sort of a normal outdoor concentration of carbon dioxide. We want that to come in, but we don't want all those other particulate pollutants coming in as well. So, you know, filters really are the first line of defense against that. So how do you recommend sort of the balance between, it, it seems like there's this focus these days on trying to balance, you know, ESG and, and carbon footprint reduction by tightening up the building like we did back, at, you know, after the energy crisis of the 70s, where, you know, it's too expensive electricity wise to, you know, temper the outdoor air versus indoor air quality. There's sort of these two big things that folks need to juggle. What, what would you say to that? You know, I think that's where, you know, standards like, so LEED comes into play to talk about our sustainability. How much energy are we using? You know, and the LEED standard might like us to see a reduction in energy use. And that might mean less outdoor air because more research, less heating and cooling, right? But then, you know, there's also now the well building standard that looks not at our the building sustainability particularly, but it's livability and and it's and the degree to which it can be a healthy place for the building occupants. So I think having those two, I mean, I don't think they're really competing because they're both trying to do good things, but to the degree that one standard might say, hey, let's kind of inch back on ventilation because it could save us some money uh, or save us some energy. The other one says, hey, you know, there's a big cost for people for the people in your building and those people being productive. And if you can, you know, from a cost savings point of view in particular, if you can make your building occupants more productive, that will offset any of the, you know, energy costs that might be associated with slightly more outdoor air coming into the building. And then it's a balance, right? Like we do see, you know, from time to time, we see people that have indoor CO2 concentrations in an occupied building, like at 600, 700 parts per million. Like they're probably bringing in more outdoor air than they need to. And they could dial it back, still provide a healthy environment for the building occupants, but save a bit on the energy costs. In summer and winter, like in spring and fall, when, you know, you've got, ideal outdoor temperatures and you're essentially operating with free cooling, you know, then we see those are really low CO2 concentrations in buildings, like just slightly above outdoors. Still to come, we're going to find out more about asbestos and how it is still an issue in buildings today. But first, if you'd like to discover more about what we're talking about with mould and asbestos in particular, I've linked some articles about mould in commercial buildings in the description area of the podcast. Also, you're invited to join Camfield's Chief Ergonomics Officer Initiative, where you'll find lots of information and free training resources. The website for all of that is chiefergonomicsofficer.com. And finally, there's a LinkedIn group where you're also welcome to join us as well. Links for all of those in the description area of the podcast. Well, for now, let's get back to Stephen and find out more about the other silent killer in buildings, asbestos. 
Steve, why do you feel that asbestos is also another dirty word when once it was considered a good idea? Well, because, I mean, so it was considered a good idea because asbestos has some pretty remarkable properties. I mean, it's essentially indestructible. Um, you know, you can't burn it. Most chemicals don't break it down. You know, at the time when asbestos was discovered and its fire resistance properties were discovered, you know, you could stop the, you know, London burning down and Toronto burning down and like cities burned down. So, you know, having things that could prevent that were really miraculous, right? So there was a very big push to use asbestos and there were you know, millions of tons of asbestos put into building materials through the, you know, primarily 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then, you know, by the 1970s, we started to see that the people who had been working with asbestos uh, 20 years earlier had a very high rate of lung cancer. I mean, primarily lung cancer, but also they were having restrictive breathing problems as well. So they were having, they essentially couldn't breathe anymore. So between these two diseases, between these two diseases, we sort of started to realize that, you know, this was a real problem. And in, in the early 70s, the manufacturers of sprayed fireproofing in Canada and, and probably North America said, gosh, we probably shouldn't be putting this stuff in our sprayed fireproofing product anymore. And then over time, you know, people stopped using it in mechanical insulation products. So, it, you know, it's only recently in the last, what's it, 20 15, it was only very recently banned in Canada as a, for use. It's, you know, it's not something that people think asbestos has been banned for decades, but you know, really it hasn't from an import point of view. It's been banned for the installation of buildings in Ontario since 1985. But you know, really, even it, and that was for friable products. So there wasn't really a ban on non-friable products. So it's, I'll, I'll say that there's a really important distinction when it comes to asbestos. So the, the, the risk around the hazard of asbestos is that the fibers get airborne and that they become inhaled. So if you don't get them airborne and you can't inhale them, there's really not a risk. They could sit on they could sit on the corner of your desk for a year and not cause you any concern unless they become airborne and get so friable materials are those materials that are very easily broken up by hand. So things like pipe insulation, sprayed fireproofing, you know, some kinds of soft cement. Uh, asbestos board materials. And the reason, and they are the more hazardous of the materials because you can, you can, as a building operator or a maintenance guy or a construction worker, you can break those up easily. And when you break them up, the fibers get released into the air and you inhale them. Non-friable materials, you really can't do anything about it. You can't break them apart by hand pressure. So things like vinyl asbestos floor tile, uh, asbestos cement pipe, those kind of things, you know, if you want to get the asbestos out of those and make it hazardous, you almost have to take a grinder or a power tool to it to, you know, break it up to the point where you can get the asbestos fibers released. Well, I was going to say it must be incredibly cost prohibitive to remove all the asbestos in the buildings that are circa 1960s and so on, right? But I guess at, to that end, at what point is it a, a concern that your building has asbestos versus not? Yeah, I think... I mean, I think we still see asbestos in buildings up to at least the 90s, um, you know, on and off. So there's this idea that, hey, my building wasn't built in 1960, so I don't have asbestos in it. And I don't, it's not something I have to worry about. So, um, you know, particularly in Ontario, there's a requirement that every 
every contractor be given information around the designated substances in their building. So primarily that's asbestos, lead, mercury, and silica prior to starting any construction project. And that never ends. Like it doesn't say that you have to do that in buildings that are older, but you don't have to do that in new buildings. And in fact, until the federal ban on asbestos in Canada, people were installing asbestos transite pipe in brand new condominium buildings going in in the in the 2000s. So like you wouldn't have seen friable materials probably, but those non-friable materials and things like asbestos cement pipe in particular were still there. And the issue there is that in most regions, in North America anyway, and that triggers requirements to have a some kind of an asbestos survey done and some kind of management program put in place. You say that those changes now are happening today with more modern buildings. Is, is there such a thing as a safe level of asbestos in a building? Yeah. So, you know, so Don Pynchon, the founder of Pynchon Limited, uh, you know, he worked on a royal commission in Ontario to look at the safety of asbestos in buildings. And the finding of that building was that this, you know, if you have asbestos in a building and it's handled properly and managed well, it is safe for the occupants in that building to live and work in that building. Like there's not, a, it's not unsafe for building occupants to be in a building that has asbestos. It is unsafe for construction workers and maintenance workers and building operators to be in a building and not know that things are asbestos containing and then accidentally, you know, oh, I got a leak in my mechanic room. I got to tear this pipe fitting off and make a repair. So if you don't know that the pipe fitting contains asbestos and you tear it off, then you run the risk of inhaling those asbestos fibers and you run the risk of illness down the road. Now, the nice thing about mold is you've got a really moldy building. People will be sneezing and wheezing and coughing. If you've got, uh, if someone goes in and tears out a bunch of asbestos about, no one will know anything's wrong until 20 years later when someone might get sick. Like there are no, there is, there's no acute impacts from asbestos exposure. You don't even know that it's happened. So how do you find out? How do you, is there a way to test for it? Is there a best practice that, you know, for this building operator that they can protect themselves? Like every building needs to have an asbestos survey complete. So if you have any reason to believe there's asbestos in the building at all, you need to have a survey completed. So you need to have someone go through and identify all the materials that contain asbestos. And you need to maintain a record of that. If you have maintenance people, they need to understand that that's there. If you have tenants that do renovations, you know, in their own tenant space, the tenants have to know that that's there. So there's a, there, there's a whole process of surveying to understand what's in a building, of maintaining those records and having a, a management program around, you know, managing that safely. And if that's not done, that's where the risk comes in, right? Where, where a contractor doesn't know that something's asbestos containing, where they, you know, do some renovations on a building and take out sprayed fireproofing that, you know, no one knew was asbestos containing at the time. And frankly, every building in Ontario, at the very least, has had to have that asbestos survey in place since 1985. So there's very little excuse at this point in time for buildings not to have them. But I'm pretty sure some buildings still don't have them. It seems like you have quite the interest. Uh, I mean, naturally, spending 20 some odd years in this field. What is it about mold and asbestos and all this sort of things that, that interests you so much that you've spent so much time sort of becoming the expert in that area? That's a good question. Um, you, you know, I started. I started my career. I in art in architectural technology, and I 
you know, wanted to design buildings. And at the t- I graduated in the 90s. And in the 90s, no one was designing any buildings because early 90s, we were in a pretty serious recession. And, you know, the economy was very flat. So I found that I could use, you know, being a really good indoor environmental consultant involves really understanding how buildings work, where those materials might be, how HVAC systems work. So, you know, I was able to bring that uh, level of understanding of buildings to the job with a bunch of guys who knew a lot about the health and safety side. And then I found that the health and safety side was very interesting and really compelling and, you know, made for a very satisfying career. So, you know, it was a great blend. And we, Pension still does that today. We hire people really from two backgrounds. We hire people who know buildings really well, and we hire people with sort of science or health and safety backgrounds. And we try and have those two people work together because then we think we can deliver kind of the best possible uh, service to, you know, our clients when they have a, a building related environmental issue or health and safety issue. Last question, you know, in considering indoor air quality, we talked about mold, we talked about asbestos. Is it even possible to have a blanket statement that, you know, the office is a cleaner indoor air quality environment than a home or vice versa? Or is that even possible to, to address? Well, offices are generally better from an indoor air quality point of view than homes are. So, like, the vast majority of offices have a mechanical air handling system that provides air filtration and ventilation, whereas the vast majority of homes have a air infiltration through ingress through doors and windows and through leaks in the envelope. They're, most homes don't have any ventilation system whatsoever. So you know, unless you have the windows open, you're not getting any fresh air. And if you're got the windows open, then you're getting you know all of the stuff that's outdoor coming in through the window because it's not filtered. Like that's the fundamental difference between the two. So you know, in new housing, there's often issues with, you know, high VOC concentrations due to off-gassing of materials. And what that can be a problem in an office space, new office as well. But at least you have the mechanical ventilation that you could ratchet the ventilation up, provide more outdoor air and sort of dilute that off-gassing. But, you know, that's less easy to do in a house. Thank you, Steve. Well, you, you heard it here first, folks. If you are working from home, that's That's great and comfortable, but if you want the best indoor air quality, you might want to consider heading over to the office. It's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you. Stephen Booth from Pynchon, thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been great. And what I'll do is I'll put contacts and more information for Stephen in the description area of this podcast if you'd like to follow up on that. Uh, There's also more in there about Canfield's Chief Ergonomics Officer Initiative, as I mentioned, with lots of information and free training resources at chiefergonomicsofficer.com. There's also a link for the LinkedIn group, uh, which you're welcome to join us on as well. That's it for today. Please do spread the word and share our podcast with a friend or a colleague. Just tell them to search Apple, Spotify, YouTube or wherever they get their podcasts for. Let's talk clean air. On to next time from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from John Holmes. Thank you so much for listening.